Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We're talking NBA playoffs. This starts a really exciting period for the show, for the NBA season, obviously. Over the next few weeks, couple of months, certainly, we're going to be going five times a week to talk about the NBA playoffs. Sometimes it is just going to be me talking about playoffs. Sometimes it's going to be Spins and I. Sometimes it's going to be Schindler and I. Sometimes I will rope in guests, maybe some that live over here in Australia because these games end late for everybody over there in the United States. But this is a really exciting time. Tomorrow, Mark Schindler is here. We're going to talk about the Western Conference playoffs. Today, though, on the podcast, Adam Spinella is here, and we're going to talk about the Eastern Conference. So I'm tired. I'm just going to be real about that. (laughs) I got off of a flight at 6 a.m. this morning that was a 15-hour flight. I slept a little bit on the plane. I'm feeling okay right now. But... Let's be real about this. I could crash at any point here. Uh, It is currently 12 o'clock. My brain feels pretty okay, though. Like, I I got back in time for the start of the Celtics-Hawks game. I watched all of the Cavs-Knicks game. I'm caught up really well on those two series. I have watched the Heat-Bucks game, which I don't know how much value in it there is, but we'll talk about that. And, uh, you know, the... Sixers and Nets is a mess, but we're going to talk about that as well. And it's not really enjoyable. Spins. I just went an hour and 45 minutes, let alone a minute and 45 seconds without letting you talk. How's it going, man? Oh, everything's good, Sam. Uh, you know, I, I'm glad that you made it back home safely there. And, and hopefully you had a great time coming back here in, in the States. But, uh, you know, the NBA playoffs are here. I, I think that it's just... I feel like I say the same thing every week. Like basketball is fun. Playoff basketball is fun. There's intensity. There's passion. Yep. There's been some some really good games. I think we'll talk about maybe some of the Eastern Conference that haven't been as competitive here and, and what's leading to those series kind of being the the blahness that they are right now. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is what we covered the league for 82 games for, is to get to this point in the year. And I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm really glad playoff basketball's here. I love it. I'm so excited the playoff basketball is here. And the coolest part of playoff basketball is to me, the adjustments that are made throughout a series. I think that we really have only seen one series thus far in the East where those adjustments have been successful. Of course, the Bucks, he, there will be adjustments in that series. We just haven't seen them yet because we've only got one game. Additionally, we have this hanging specter of Giannis and Tedekumpo's injury hanging over everything. And we'll talk about everything there when we get to that. But I do want to start with Celtics Hawks, a game that ended about an hour ago or so. The Celtics are now up 
2-0 in this series. They beat the Atlanta Hawks 119-106 tonight. Look, Trey Young and DeJounte Murray combined for 53 points and 12 rebounds or 12 assists in this game, six steals, nine rebounds. On the surface, these numbers look okay. And frankly, I think DeJounte played pretty well in this game. I think that a lot of the issues for the Hawks very strongly come down to schematic concerns that they have because of the presence of Trey Young and the issues that guys, let alone like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, bring up in those settings. But moreover, guys like Derek White and even like Malcolm Brogdon really are just capable of taking advantage of size-based mismatches in that way. Having said that, like there there have been very few moments where I felt like it's been a size issue for Trey. There have been some, don't get me wrong. It's been a lot more, to me at least, effort and awareness-based for the Hawks in general. But I think a lot of it, in my view, comes down to Trey Young on the defensive end being emblematic of some of the issues that they have defensively, schematically, and in terms of just like off-ball awareness, communication, being able to uh, switch and adjust on the fly in the way that you have to in a series against Boston. Yeah, the Celtics are just a brutal matchup for Atlanta because there really is nowhere for Trey Young to hide. And, you know, in the playoffs, particularly when you have bigger guards in the way that the Celtics do, you're going to want to cross match, so to speak, and try to put Trey Young on more of a spot up shooter on somebody who's not going to be as much of a threat off the bounce. And the Celtics don't really have that because every guy that they play out there is either a point of attack, a dribble penetration guy, or pretty good on repenetration. That's the way that Brad Stevens has constructed this roster and, and all of the lineups that Joe Mazzullo throws out there always have really good balance of the playmakers. So, you know, you mentioned Derek White, like they started to be more aggressive on him in ball screens in game two, which is not something I'd expect the, the Atlanta Hawks to really do against Derek White. But it was one of the only ways to try to help Trey Young out in some of those situations. You know, Brogdon can completely muscle him and just get to his spots regardless and barely feel Trey Young's presence on there. You certainly can't have him guard Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum in one-on-one situations. And then if you try to put him on Marcus Smart, you know that mismatch bully post-up is always going to be a card that he'll pull out of his back pocket at the time you least expect it. And the way that he can physically duck in Trey Young, it just wears you down, particularly when you know how much Trey is carrying on the offensive end of the floor. So this is a nightmare matchup for the Atlanta Hawks, just in terms of the places that you can put Trey Young, because there really aren't many. And I think the the mental toll of something like that is starting to really chip away, not just at Trey's effort, but kind of the collective buy-in on the defensive end of the floor. So I don't disagree with anything you're saying in terms of this being a brutal matchup for the Hawks. It 100% is. And I think that it extends beyond Trey Young in regard to the way that this roster is constructed. Again, like I don't really want to like hammer DeJounte Murray. I think that would be really unfair after the game he's played. I think he has not been the issue for Atlanta. I will just say, I think DeJounte is a much better on ball defender than he is an off ball defender. And 
you will see these like random doubles at times that just don't work against Boston. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you, you know, just randomly like go off on your own and go out of scheme and double somebody against Boston, it, it, you're going to get killed. That's just, they have too many guys that are too smart that can find where the double is coming from. They can find the open man. And they're so good at just reversing it around the perimeter. They're going to find an open three. You, you just can't, you can't rely on that. I, I will also note that I think DeAndre Hunter is also not a great off ball defender. Uh, he is a big physical wing who takes on matchups at a really high level. Uh, you, he is someone you can throw on Jason Tatum. I'm not saying you're going to have success against Jason Tatum sure. necessarily, sure. but he's someone that you can at least feel like is going to make Jason work on some level. He is not a great off ball defender. Like there was a moment, I think it was in the second quarter of this game tonight where it almost felt like he thought they were in zone and just like randomly decided to leave Jalen Brown at the top of the key to like double and Jalen was just like, okay, I'm just going to back cut you now. And like, he's got a wide open layup because of it. But I think that the biggest, the biggest problem with the Hawks in that regard is Trey young. And that is why, you know, we can talk about there being other issues with the Hawks defensively. There are. It's hard to account for those other issues when you also have the biggest glaring one there. Like it feels like the Celtics have not even kicked it out of like second gear at this point. And like, they have not run anything creative in this series. Really? Like the most creative thing I've seen from them was like in the first quarter after they had like a couple of empty possessions where they ran like a side Spain pick and roll off of an Al Horford handoff where, you know, Tatum basically rejected the handoff, came back around to a flipped screen from Horford, followed by that Spain back screen from Marcus Smart to get Trey Young involved in the primary action because it's just really, really hard to pre-switch Spain actions like that. And, you know, Jason Tatum got a super easy layup out of it, but it's not even the schematic issues that Trey Young presents for Atlanta right now. It's like the run of the mill run of play issues. Like there was a play, I think again in the second quarter in the midst of their like big run to really break this thing open where Derek white, like, you know, dribbled the ball up, handed it to Tatum. And then white took like a step toward Tatum. Like he was going to go and set a screen and I swear there were probably like five feet of separation still between white and Tatum. It wasn't like they were even really at the mesh point of the screen yet And Trey just like way, like hard hedged out and took himself like completely out of the play. And Derek white was just like, well, I guess this is now just like a ghost screen and I'm just going to back cut him. But it wasn't even like a ghost screen. It was just uh, reading the play and being very intelligent on Derek white's part. Those are the breakdowns that just like can't happen. There were a couple of moments where Trey was really, really bad in transition defense, like just like total like olaying at midcourt trying to get a steal. Or there was a run out in the first half where uh, Derek White just beat him down the court in like a pretty substantial way. There was one play in the second 
quarter that really pissed me off. And I also think it pissed off Quinn Snyder because I think he took him off after this play uh, where it was like a steal in the backcourt where I think Jason Tatum like pickpocketed. I can't remember who it was and got the ball on the wing. And then Trey is on the weak side and he's like the low man help defender in this scenario. And he uh, Tatum beats his man going baseline. This is just like the most automatic help. And Trey recognizes it. He takes two steps to go help. And then he's just like, no, I'm good. I'm not even going to like try this. And look, Trey Young is small. And I don't know how much of an impact he would have made in that setting. It was a far rotation. It was a long rotation. But it was just like emblematic of the effort to me. It was was like a fake help. Like he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. It's the playoffs. You, you want to see. You want to see more effort. And this is a dude that genuinely led them to the Eastern Conference Finals a few years ago. And I think you can talk about like how much the league has changed, how much this Hawks team has changed. Certainly, but man, I don't see any of that like verve. I, I don't see any of that energy. That any of that, like that dude, that dude was like an absolute motherfucker in terms of confidence. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he was like, try, he was in the middle of Madison square garden, shutting every single person in the stands up. And that's just like, I, I don't see that. Do you see that when you watch him right now? No, I don't see that level of confidence. And, and there could be a myriad of factors that go into influencing that I'm not going to try to take a stab at kind of what goes with it. Uh, I think stylistically in this series, you know, Atlanta has always had two bigs on the floor. They play Collins and Capella or a Kongwu together. And, uh, you know, when you have two bigger bodies and you have a guy like Trey young out there, it just, it's so limits and strangles your defensive versatility. The, the story yeah. of this series has been how many, naked layups or dunks the Boston Celtics have gotten at the rim. And that was a tone that they established in the first quarter of game one. It allowed them to get out to a really good start. And it just hasn't felt like they've had to, to really work for anything on the offensive end as a result. Well, like in the second quarter, like right at the start of that big run, the Celtics had Rob Williams just like beat his man down the court three times. And the first two resulted in a post pin where it was just like, okay, I'm just going to pin this guy high. I have a mismatch, throw the ball up to me. I'm good. And then the third one was just like, he beat his man down the wing and, you know, got an easy layup. It, it, a lot of it's just like playing harder on some yeah. level too. And I guess that where I go with all of this, and I know we're not talking about the Celtics, honestly, I, I don't know what to say about the Celtics here. They're just like not being challenged in this series so far. And it's like boring to me to talk about the Celtics on some (laughs) level. I'm excited to watch them have to play a real team in the next round that will challenge them. Uh, That's probably rude to Atlanta on some level, but Atlanta is not playing like a team that looks like a playoff team right now in terms of their cohesiveness, their togetherness, everything in that regard. So I, I apologize to Boston fans that I feel like I'm probably giving them a bit of the short end of the stick here. We'll talk about them way more throughout the playoffs. Like I'm 
so, so excited to watch the Celtics team. I think Jason Tatum's been outstanding. I think Derek White has been, Derek White's outplayed both Trey Young and uh, DeJounte Murray in this series so far. Like he set the tone in game one with his physicality and his willingness to like really step in there. And then in game two, he was just the absolute mismatch nightmare of mismatch nightmares against Trey Young, it felt like. Uh, So all of that being said, to Boston fans. Uh, I am thrilled to talk about your team moving forward. I think that the Trey Young conversation in terms of where they go now, I, I don't think this is reactionary. I don't think it's hot takey anymore. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks, over the course of the last few years, culminating in the DeJounte Murray deal, have kind of boxed themselves in to a really difficult situation in terms of roster building. And they need to find a way out of it. This team is nowhere near competing right now. I I don't think, honestly, I think we learned at the trade deadline that like moving John Collins is not going to solve much for them in terms of what his value is. Uh, DeJounte Murray has one more year left on his contract He's not going to bring back the type of value that you paid for him, even though, uh, look, I think DeJounte has been himself fine this year. Yeah. Uh, I do think that moving Trey Young should be on the table for them. I'm not reacting to any of the reports that are out there that, you know, uh, if I remember correctly, I think Shams might have said something along this line of thinking recently. I don't think it's reactionary anymore with the way that this organization has boxed themselves in. It is hard to find a way out that actually changes the trajectory of the franchise without moving Trey Young. Where are you at on where you sit in your mind on the Hawks moving forward? Because, but part of this is for me, like you said at the top, this is a disaster matchup for the Hawks. Why is this any different against Philly? Why is this any different against Milwaukee? Like these teams can go just as big, right? Like Milwaukee is going to play you just as big with multiple bigs, Giannis, and they can go, you know, six, five, six, four, at least across the front court. Drew Holiday is just going to back down Trey and do whatever he wants to him. Right. Uh, You know, Philly has James Harden, who's going to be able to mismatch Hunt against Trey the entire time. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, maybe you put Tyrese Maxey on Trey. That's not going to go any better. So I, I just don't know why this – okay, it's the Cavs, right? They play super big with Mobley and Allen, and then Trey has to guard one of Donovan Mitchell or Darius Garland. I, my point is I don't know why this goes any differently against any of the top four teams in the East. So given how young those teams are outside of like, maybe you can make the case Philly uh, is in a precarious position with James Harden's contract coming up with X, Y, and Z. Right. Uh, But like the Cavs are very young. The the Celtics are very, very young. Why does this change for Atlanta moving forward? Yeah. I don't know if I have an answer for that. I think that anytime you have a smaller point of attack defender whose effort has kind of waxed and waned through the years, you're going to have challenges stopping anybody in a best of seven series. What we've seen 
for Atlanta to get to the Eastern Conference Finals before is really leaning into offense and the floor spacing. And if they can just have one reliable big man on the inside who can do enough deterrence or damage protecting the basket and then hypercharge their offense, they're going to have a chance. And I, I think that hypercharged offense, the first change in moving in a positive direction was hiring Quinn Snyder, who's a brilliant offensive coach. And I do think that long-term, a, a summer and an off-season with him being able to put his stamp on this roster a little bit more is something worth exploring before really throwing the, the towel in and playing the blow-up book. But I do understand the DeJounte Murray contract situation doesn't afford you as much leeway to explore that timeline as you might want. I, I, yeah. I think the other part of this is that they just don't shoot enough three-pointers. Uh, they, they don't they lose the math battle in a game where they have no margin for error on the defensive end. And those two things combined are, it just, it eats away at your, your ability to win games. They took the season high three point attempts tonight against Boston. And they had a great shooting night from DeJounte Murray. And they were able to keep it somewhat close in the third and fourth quarters to, to give themselves some hope that, okay, if we lean into this strategy a little bit more, we're moving on to our home court. We just need to get hot on the right nights and we'll be able to be okay. But I, I think the challenge with that a lot of the times comes with maybe some of the younger guys that they've had on their roster plugging into some of the role player spots. And then John Collins. Uh, that's that's the one that we keep coming back to here. Stylistically, with the way that Quinn Snyder has coached and found success before, with having a non-versatile point guard and two bigs together. It just doesn't seem to fit. I, I would continue to go down the, see what we can get back for John Collins. Trust that you can play some combinations of Sadiq Bay, AJ Griffin, Jalen Johnson at those wing spots next to Hunter and Bogdanovich, maybe add another wing or a really talented uh, defender and, and point of attack and help guy that you can get in there. And all of a sudden, things are starting to change where you can match up and do some things differently, but they need more yeah. switchability on the wings two through four, if they're going to be able to make this work. And again, I think John Collins is the right piece there. And when I talk about all of this, I'm not saying that I think the answer is like a hundred percent to move Trey young. I'm just saying, I think you kind of have to look into it a little bit at this point. Like you see what's out there at the very least, because Again, I just don't know what changes against all of the top teams in the East. And oh, by the way, like there are other teams that are coming. Like there's a semi-real chance. There's what, basically a 50-50 shot that one of the teams in the East is just going to get Vic, right? There's like a real yeah. chance that one of the teams in the East is going to get Scoot. And Scoot is just going to like blow through Trey Young, like from day one. And that's not to say that Trey won't get him on the other end. Trey's a better player than Scoot is right now. But those are the kind of schematic disadvantages that really occur with Trey. And I think he really just needs to make a significant concerted effort on the defensive end of the court to make higher level adjustments. So like the gamer legends here in YouTube says – the Bucks in Philly play drop coverage. That kind of helps. It does. But like the Bucks can go small first and foremost with Giannis at the five. And that just like completely negates everything. And then 
Philly, yeah, I guess you can say that Trey can be Joel Kryptonite, right? But I think it's way harder to outscore Philly now than it was then. Because the thing that people don't actually remember about that Philly series that took Atlanta to the Western Conference Finals, Atlanta won that series on defense, not necessarily by way outscoring the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah, yeah, they won it by uh, certain players turning down layups as well. Sure. Look, I think that was a seven-game series, and there was one play that happened. But your point there is valid in terms of the in terms of the amount of floor spacing that Atlanta did not have to account for in that series, that's just not the reality of the 76ers anymore. They can surround Joel with James Tyrese, Tobias Harris, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Like uh, whoever, you know, they can surround them with everybody if they want to. De'Anthony Melton is a real shooter in a way that even Ben Simmons isn't. So, I get the point. I don't think it's, I think it's worth discussing. It just isn't to me something that is going to make a difference for Atlanta at this point where they are. Uh, we talked a lot about Atlanta now. Let's maybe take a quick commercial break and move on to this Cavs Knicks series that is really, really interesting and yeah. was definitely the series I was most interested in entering the playoffs. Okay, Spins, on the Tab NBA tip-off show I do with Benyam Kadane, one of the best people I know here in Australia. Shout out, Benyam. I said that the Knicks-Cavs was the series I was most looking forward to. And it has not disappointed from an adjustment, from a schematic, from really, I guess, like, the only thing that's disappointed is we haven't had, like, a really close game yet, right? But... A fascinating, fascinating series that I am so excited to dive into here. What were your impressions of game one? Let's start there with Knicks-Cavs. Yeah, I think the the Knicks were pristine on the defensive end from a game plan and execution standpoint uh, to be able to withstand a Donovan Mitchell flamethrower night and be able to execute and do the things that they do is is really uh, it's rare that you can win a playoff game when somebody goes nuclear in the second half the way that Mitchell did. Uh, Jalen Brunson is just so damn good at basketball. And it shows up in how cerebral he is on the defensive end of the floor with rotations. But more than anything, he controls the pace and the tempo of a game. And he knows when to go fast. He knows when to slow down and organize the Knicks in that regard. I thought that Thibodeau did an awesome job of kind of scheming what they were going to do, who they were going to take away, where. And at this point in the series through two games, you know, the Cavs have tried to cross match and use Isaac Okoro against Jalen Brunson and try to match him with that physicality, save Garland and Mitchell from those matchups, which is something you can do when RJ Barrett and Quinton Grimes are your starting two and three. You can siphon those guys off. Okoro takes Brunson, handles the physicality. But Brunson's just beating his ass every single time down the floor. And it has changed and fundamentally altered the way that Cleveland had to construct their lineups. We saw that coming out of the half here in game two. And I think it's something that Bickerstaff is going to look at moving forward 
is the viability of Isaac Okoro in a series when he's not been as effective as a one-on-one defender in that necessary matchup for him in order to save those two Cleveland guards. So, yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up the Okoro piece of it because that was the biggest adjustment from game one to game two. Yeah. Isaac Okoro played, I believe, only – look, I don't know what he finished with because, uh, frankly, I stopped watching this game with like five minutes left in the fourth quarter. Uh, I, I saw the Julius Randle play, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But like Isaac Okoro, looking now at the box score, did only play three minutes over the course of this entire game. They really rocked with Karis Levert in this game. And Karis Levert knocking down some early threes – I think really set the tone in terms of floor spacing and in terms of just opening things up for the guards. It was really, really hard for the Knicks to sag off of anybody. They really had to play the Cavs much more straight up uh, in this game. Uh, It felt like particularly to me, the Cavs figured out a lot more on how to handle the Knicks guarding a little bit more often at the level of the screen. And from there, how they would utilize Evan Mobley or Jarrett Allen to be able to be the release valve when they guarded at the level of the screen. And I think that just having that fifth actual offensive option, guy that can dribble, guy that can make decisions on the court, completely shifted things in terms of how the Knicks had to play it. And they didn't really have that in-game adjustment to be able to come up with something uh, to stop it in in this game. And now we'll see in game three, because I imagine the Cavs will go back to the well on this. I I think that Karis LeVert is probably here to stay in this series. Uh, You know, Danny Green also, I thought, was pretty valuable in the minutes he played. Chetty Osman, I thought, was like useful and viable in this game at the very least. I don't know if that'll be the case long-term in this series, but it did feel like to me the schematic adjustments in terms of having Karis LeVert out there and being able to play a little bit more aggressively and being able to hit those, you know, short rolls, being able to hit different things. Like Evan Mobley had zero assists in this game, but it felt like to me he was integral in their ball movement. Yeah. Uh, in just being a release valve for them. So what were your impressions in terms of the adjustments from Cleveland in game two? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's no adjustment like making shots and the way that they shot the ball in game two was, was pretty impressive. I mean, the great part of having multiple star guards who can create for themselves is that on any given night, one of them, if not both of them are going to go off. And we saw Mitchell have the great game in game one. Garland's turn was here tonight. He was outstanding. Pace with the ball in his hands. He was in attack mode. He's competing on the defensive end of the floor, which helps him, you know, stay on and and not really be a, a weak spot that the Knicks can pick apart. I thought Cleveland yep. did a decent job of, of trying to get out and transition. And like you said in the the Boston Atlanta thing, you know, if you can just beat everybody down the floor or try to try to make plays and get yourself some easy ones, boy, does that alleviate the pressure that you have to to create more in the half court. Mitchell, 13 assists tonight. Unbelievable passing performance from him. And uh, I just, yep. that I had one jaw dropping play where 
he goes into the lane. It looks like he's going to raise up and just <laughs> yam on somebody. And he throws, as it seems like he's about to dunk it, just a right-hand bullet pass to the corner, which ended, I believe, a Chetty Osman three. It was Chetty, yeah. It was a sick play. I mean, look, those two guys are, are really, really good. And Cleveland yep. found ways to either get them into the lane to make plays for themselves they sustained their ball movement really well and threw some one more passes and found the right shooters who were open. And you hit the nail on the head there. It's something you can do and have success more of when you're not playing four on five, when you don't have a non-shooter, a non-scorer threat like Isaac Coro. And there was one play right at the start of the game in those just three minutes that he played where I think Garland drove to his left Okoro was in the corner. He kicked it out to Okoro, who pump faked and drove it back to the rim and just had nowhere to go. Like, that has to be a shot in the corner if you're going to beat the New York Knicks. It has to. Well, it's just a lot easier to play at the level of the screen when you have somebody that you can constantly tag off of in the corner, right? Because, you know, Jared Allen's coming downhill every time. Evan Mobley's coming downhill every time uh, out of those situations, or he's short-rolling having somebody that you can genuinely tag out of the corner onto that role, man bogs everything up. And you saw what happened when the Cavs did not have that as a problem. And to me, this is a series where you do not need Isaac Okoro just straight up. Like, I I don't think you need Isaac Okoro in this series. I, I get that. Jalen Brunson just methodically, cerebrally slashed them up in the first game. Like, that was the most impressive part of game one to me outside of one factor that we'll talk about here momentarily. The way Jalen Brunson just methodically found every single matchup that he wanted out of a ball screen by stringing guys out, patiently waiting for the little edge and little seam that he wanted, and then attacking it. I thought that was so, so, so impressive from Jalen Brunson in game one. The big difference for me, though, in game two for the Cavs versus game one, they didn't get out toughed in this game. Like, no. I, I don't think I'd go as far as to say the Knicks like kind of punked them in game one. I think that'd be aggressive. I felt like you could see the like the strength edge and the physicality edge in the front court from the Knicks in game one. Like there was that viral clip of, you know, Evan Mobley just getting like driven uh, on the free throw line forward by Julius Randle trying to get a rebound. And you saw just like the, the strength edge and the physicality edge that they have. It felt like particularly to me, Jared Allen took it on his shoulders tonight to say, no, that's not happening again. Like Jared Allen had nine points, 10 rebounds, three assists, three steals, three blocks. He was a physical presence at the rim every time in this game. He was really impactful when he had to be in space defensively. And I know that Knicks fans are going to be upset about this when I say this. I thought that the play at the end of the game where the Knicks are down 20. Julius Randle is going to try and throw down a dunk in transition. And Jared Allen does not need to go and try and contest this. Just straight up. Like, there are three minutes left in this game, whatever it was. He does. And I think that that kind of attitude is emblematic of some of the adjustments 
the Cavs made in this game just in terms of setting a tone on their own home court. And I didn't really have a problem with him doing it because I thought it was in that vein as opposed to trying to hurt somebody, as opposed to trying to uh, you know, contest something when the game is over, which it did happen. But, uh, you know, in an ideal world, do you hope that that doesn't happen? Yes, but these games aren't played in a vacuum. And I thought that a big piece of what the Cavs did tonight was based on just not getting out toughed and not getting like out physical uh, in a real way. Like the offensive rebounding battle tonight was pretty close to even Uh, the points off of turnovers. The Cavs just turned it over like crazy in the first game as well. Uh, Again, I think a matter of having to go into a crowded lane often with Isaac Okoro getting played off of constantly. I thought that the lane was much more open in game one, the turn game two, the turnovers were not as drastic. Yeah, I thought that it was a super, super impressive, professional, and strong performance from a team that is still quite young and is still figuring out what their playoff identity is going to be on some level. Like these guys have never played playoff games together up until game one of this series. And look, they're still figuring out what they need to do and what buttons to press. I think removing Akora from the rotation and leaning in more to Levert and the experience Danny Green helps. I still think that the Evan Mobley unwillingness to shoot three-pointers that has kind of developed over the last month and a half is something that can come back to bite them if it's exploited in the wrong way. He's 20% from three since March 1st. And wildly impactful in almost every other way on the basketball court. It's just one of those things when you play a too big lineup, you have to understand there might be ramifications for the way that that lack of floor spacing can come back to bite you. More than anything, it just means Okoro is unplayable because Mobley is that much more impactful than a guy like Okoro. Um, I'm thinking preemptively about the adjustments that the Knicks could or might make as a result of this. And I'm thinking – are we going to see more Brunson and quickly lineups together, particularly against both Mitchell and Garland when they're on the floor? I I was also thinking that. So I kind of looked through the plus minus numbers before we started recording in in this game and in a game that the Knicks lost by approximately a billion points. uh, Emmanuel quickly was only a minus five and I thought that that lined up in terms of what his impact was look (laughs) the adjustment that i think even knicks fans want at this point is to play lineups with jalen brunson quentin grimes emmanuel quickly in the backcourt and not have rj barrett out there and i thought that barrett was really bad in the first half i thought he came to life a little bit in the second half at least i didn't think barrett was their biggest problem in this game by any stretch, but I would very much like to see more of those lineups uh, that involve that. And I also think there's a real case for the Knicks to go super small yeah, uh, and just say, you know what, Josh Hart, you have to physical up against Evan Mobley and let's see what happens there. Right. I think he, I think he can do it. Yeah. Look, I don't know if he can do it, but I'd be intrigued to see it. Like if you play Josh Hart at the four, you know, Julius Randle at the five and just see what that looks like and see how much it spaces out the Cavs on defense. See if you can get Jared Allen away from the basket all that much more 
And I think it would really force a number of mismatch issues moving forward for the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, and in favor of the New York Knicks in an interesting way. Uh, I I also thought that like Isaiah Hartenstein's minutes weren't terrible tonight. I thought that he really uh, facilitated ball movement in a real way that they needed uh, Mm -hmm. across the board. This series is like nowhere near done. I have genuinely no idea who's going to win this series. Uh, I think I would lean the Cavs still. I know that the Knicks have home court advantage now that they've, they were able to steal game one uh, in Cleveland. I do think that I just trust Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, that backcourt to be able to cause enough issues uh, and cause enough schematic deficiencies for the Knicks. But a lot of it's going to be dependent on does JB Bickerstaff continue down this road of just not playing a Coro. And I think that he will. Like based off of what we've seen, I think that it'll continue down that road. The, the other guy that, you know, I've called for Dean Wade to play a little bit more, like they have more options than this as well. They they have, I'm not saying any of these options at the three are great, but I think that in this series, particularly, I think Dean Wade would be a fine player to play in this series against the Knicks. So maybe not if they have three guards out there and that can be the preemptive adjustment for New York to try and get Chetty Osman in space, try and get, you know, Force Danny Green to like really defend and see what he's got. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. See what he can do in space now. I, I don't know how it's going to look is my point here. And there are a number of adjustments that are going to come back and forth either way uh, in this series. And I'm going to be fascinated to see how Tom Thibodeau bounces back from this game. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I, I did not think Obi Toppin was the answer by any means in the minutes that he played tonight. I, I don't know if I'd hit that button moving forward, but I think there's something there with going a little bit smaller, leaning into some of the quickly and Brunson two guard, like two quicker advantage creators, so to speak. Because when you have, yep. particularly if there's lineups of Barrett, Hart, and Jalen Brunson, and Jalen Ra- uh, Julius Randle in and, there. And like, we, we should be clear about this. Like Josh Hart was pretty bad tonight. Yeah. I don't think he'll be bad. I don't think he'll be that bad again. But like Josh Hart was not an answer for them no. tonight. But I think he can be in the future for them as long as he's willing to yeah. shoot. But like when you have Brunson, Randall, and Barrett on the floor at the same time, like that's team stride stop. Like they just get into the lane and stop and pivot and fake. And it, it's a very slow, methodical brand it's of basketball. And it's, it's really hard to get like easy kick out opportunities for threes from there. And, and I think that's where the Knicks, like as they need superhuman Brunson, they need efficient Julius Randle in order to produce enough offense against a pretty good Cavs defense, like a little bit more quickness and a little more ball movement. I think we'll get them some easier looks from beyond the arc. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to talk about with this series? Cause I, I don't really know. Where, where else to go with it now? Yeah, uh, I, I, it's wide open, Sam. It's wide, yeah. wide, wide open. Uh, I'm with you, I don't really know how to predict a winner in this. My gut, like yours, says that Cleveland has more scoring punch and firepower that they can continually lean into no matter what the, the Knicks throw at them defensively. So that tends to be where I lean. But there are a lot of adjustments that both sides can make moving forward. Okay, let's go to Heat Bucks now. The Heat are up 1-0 in this series. And I think we're going to get into, let's start with the bigger picture, you know, hot takey conversation about the charge. Uh, You and I have long been proponents of 
how much we hate the charge. And I think that like a lot of people have said we have to completely abolish the charge. I don't even think you and I are like completely on that front on that boat. To me, the rule change with the charge is like pretty simple. If a player is airborne, it can't be a charge just by standing underneath him and holding your balls. Uh, If a player is on the ground and driving, it can be a charge. I think that that's like a reasonable accommodation across the board that makes it a little bit easier to officiate, which is the biggest thing here to me. Like basketball players have gotten so athletic, so fast that the charge is very difficult to officiate. If we can make it easier to officiate, I think that it just helps by leaps and bounds in in terms of improving it. To me, it's if a player is going to get airborne, it can't be a charge. If a player's on the ground and like barreling a shoulder into somebody or like using an off arm, it can be a charge. Where are you at on the yep. charge? Because obviously this has now played an integral role in this series following the Kevin Love, Giannis and Tedekumpo incident where Giannis is now quite, is uh, now doubtful, I believe, for game two with this hip injury, according to Eric Name and the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, having released their injury report. Yeah. Primary defenders can draw on ball charges because to me, that's a player control issue. It happens at the point of attack where you can talk more about legal guarding position. I I have a really tough time with secondary defenders being a legal legal guarding position because they're not really guarding the play uh, or or at least guarding the the driver and the player from a primary standpoint Uh, on the perimeter. There's been such a huge emphasis on landing space for shooters because as soon as they get airborne, it's dangerous for them to come down on ankles or feet. And that has been a point of emphasis at the NBA level the last couple of years. I just, I've never been able to wrap my head around why something like this is different. That if an airborne player tries to make a play at the rim, he should be entitled to come down and have that space. Right now, the burden has been on referees to watch for whether contact is square and if the player arrives just in time on the defensive end of the floor. I think the burden has to be completely lowered to arrived before the offensive player even takes off. That's that's really the change that, that would happen to me. I, I am so colored and biased by watching high school basketball, with which is my, my full-time job, <laughs> and how poorly officiated the charge rule is at that level how poor the mechanics are of guys who try to slide in and take them and the dangerous plays that happen as a result of it. My, one of my first years as a college coach, we lost our all conference point guard in the opening game of the season uh, to a, to a charge call and broke his thumb and was out for the next month and a half. We lost 11 games straight. These things where players get hurt in these situations are easily avoidable not necessarily by completely banning the charge or rewriting the rule book as it is, but changing yeah. the the way that we enforce and, and what we reward for help defenders to do. I think that's a hundred percent right. I love the idea of a weak side defender. It, it gets a little bit tricky because I do think that there are times where a weak side defender probably should be able to like come in and like hold his ground. If a player just like barrels his shoulder into you, uh, as opposed to like a weak side defender coming in and just like trying to set his feet and hold his nuts and like stand there and just try and take a charge. It's not athletic. The best point that you brought up is the landing space ideal. 
it's not only is it nonsensical that we care this much about uh, non-logical, let's say, that we care this much about jump shooters landing space, whereas we don't care about plays at the rim, those plays at the rim are drastically more, more dangerous. dangerous. Much. They are so much more dangerous for the player that is airborne. It eludes me that we want to see the most athletic players in the league because proportionally, those are the guys who are being hindered by this. It eludes me that we are actually trying to put like basically restrictor plates on these guys that are the most athletic players in the league. And then also we're putting them most at risk by not having a landing space rule around the basket. This just feels like one of those things that is such an archaic ideal within old timey basketball that like fucking Dick Vitale is probably super excited about talking about how he thinks the charge should be uh, implemented forever. I I just can't get there. Like we've been very clear on this show throughout its history that we think the charge needs overhauled. It does not need abolished. It needs overhauled. And I think it's a very simple rule. If a player is on the ground and is not airborne and he barrels his shoulder into somebody or he like does something like that, it can be a charge. If a player is airborne, it should, you should not be able to take a charge like that. I think it is a dangerous play. And I think we saw it and it unfortunately looks like it's going to have a significant impact on this series now, because I, I frankly don't even know how to break down this heat buck series. Yeah at this point because if Giannis is not there I think the Heat probably win this series just straight up I do uh I've talked a lot about how I think the Heat or how I think the Bucks have a really good supporting cast with Drew Holiday Brooke Lopez Drew uh Chris Middleton certainly but like they're number two number three number four options they're not Jimmy Butler and look, we need to talk about the fact that he'd have their own injury issues. Tyler Hero has broken his wrist. And by the way, I think like, or was it his hand? He like made a three-pointer after breaking oh, his... Did, did he like, make it? Like, I can't... I thought he made it. Like, I have no idea what, what happened on that play other than he's standing there like shaking his hand. Someone passes him the ball and he like quickly, oh, I got to get it up. And then he's shaking it. That was weird. Crazy. Uh but here is here, here's where I'll just pose it to you and you know hit yeah. the ball back to you like we're on a tennis court. What does this series look like moving forward without Giannis if that ends up being the reality of this series? Without Giannis, the offensive approach that the Bucks take is going to change drastically. I think that they need to mismatch Hunt a hell of a lot more. I think that they need to play through Brooke Lopez or Bobby Portis more inside, particularly Lopez. Uh, I think Middleton has to be great. He has to be all-star level Chris Middleton in order for them to, to really move on. And that's going to be a hard thing to do when the guy who's probably guarding him is Jimmy Butler, who is one of the more intense matchups that you can find in a playoff series. Uh, I think it's worth noting on the other end of the floor 
that Brooklyn is probably more likely to be in a drop and more likely to play heavier Brook Lopez minutes, knowing that they don't have that Giannis at the five in their back pocket that they can go to in a lot of those different instances. And what that means is Miami can probably get a lot of pull-up jumpers in the mid-range off against that drop coverage. They will miss Tyler Hero's ability without question to be able to do stuff like that. But I think that this is a like Jimmy Butler licking his chops. It's his time to cook type of offense that if they can steal both of them here in Milwaukee, this is a this is a really, really fascinating spot to be in going back home to South Beach. Completely agree with you. What I will say here as well is look, the Heat generally take a lot of threes. Like they're more than happy to you know, drive and kick, spray it out to Max Struess, spray it out to Tyler Hero, Kyle Lowry, like certainly all those guys, right? Um, Kevin Love, now that he's on the roster, et cetera. Uh, the Heat, even with that being said, did not have a game this season where they shot 60% from three like they did in this game. And they only had, I'm just like kind of counting, you know, on – you know, almost my hand here. They had like basically 15, 16 games this year where they made 15 threes to only do so on 25 three point attempts, because that is what Milwaukee's defense is trying to do. They're trying to force you into mid range opportunities Mm -hmm. and trying to feed you into Brooke to be able to allow him to be a high level rim protector at the basket. uh, And then like really closing out hard on three point shooters for the heat to have made this many threes while only attempting 25 of them, by the way, the heat only attempted 25 or fewer threes in four games this season. So the buck scheme, even without Giannis for a large portion of the game kind of worked defensively. Like the shot, the shot mix that Miami got was kind of what, Milwaukee wanted it's just also that you have Giannis closing out on some of these three-point shooters instead of you know x y and z replacement level defender you know like Jay Crowder playing 12 minutes Wes Matthews being forced into 18 minutes Javon Carter playing 23 minutes Bobby Porter's playing 27 right like it felt like uh there wasn't like a one-for-one guy that came in probably Bobby a little bit more than anybody else, but they kind of spread the minutes out over the course of the bench and tried a lot of different lineups to really make it work. But the scheme I thought was good. It's just that Miami drilled a ton of threes. And then on top of it, like if, you know, they're going to turn it over 13 times and then Miami's going to be able to get out and transition. Like it, it becomes trickier in those settings when you're turning it over 13 times when Giannis isn't really involved in a lot of those turnovers. I mean, look, this was, it was a 13 point win for Miami, but there were moments where it got closer down the stretch and for Miami, for Milwaukee to have it that close in a game where Miami shoots 60% from the field, 60% from three as an insane game from Max or excuse me, from, uh, from Kevin Love from three going four of seven to have the the Caleb Martin and one takeover down the stretch where he hits two like really tough and one buckets in a row. Yep. I think all things considered, like this wasn't this runaway, like dominant Miami game start to finish. And we, I don't think Kevin Love's going to shoot it that way again. 
where maybe that ends up being the the mismatch that Miami wants to keep pressing the button on time and time and time again. But I still think that there are opportunities to attack Kevin Love more on the offensive end, even when you don't have Giannis in the game. And Milwaukee, yeah. Milwaukee's got to go mismatch hunting a little bit more. So, uh, you know, Miami got 10 for 15 from three from Gabe Vincent, Kevin Love, and Caleb Martin in this game. I look, maybe it happens again, like by the law of, you know, mathematics, it's possible, but it seems like that is going to be difficult to expect every night. Let's say that, and it won't happen every night. So I don't know how to break down the series right now no. beyond hoping that we get to see Giannis again. Uh, Giannis has had an incredible season. He would have been my pick for MVP, as I stated, you know, on the awards podcast that I did with Schindler. But w- without him, I think w- one one show that I did with Jason Timp over at Hoops Tonight, over at the Volume Network earlier this year, was in regard to what guy has the best supporting cast among the MVP candidates. And I said that I thought when Chris Middleton was healthy, the Bucks probably had the best supporting cast for their star. And then I thought Denver actually had the best supporting cast outside of them. And then Philadelphia, you know, also had a great supporting cast as well. But I thought that, you know, the roster makes a lot of sense around Joel, but doesn't make quite as much sense as the starters make sense around Jokic in terms of offensive production. And obviously Giannis did not have Chris Middleton the entire season, did not have Drew Holiday, did not have, well, yeah, Brooke Lopez for almost all the season, but did not have Drew Holiday for 20 games this year, did not have Chris Middleton basically for 60 of them by the time he got healthy uh, after his first 10 games, just kind of feeling his way back in. And I thought that Giannis's supporting cast over the course of the entire season was probably the worst out of the group. We're now going to find out (laughs) how good Giannis's supporting cast is. I don't think they, if Giannis, look, I think Giannis is going to play again in this series. If Giannis was not playing in the series, I would pick Miami. I would at this point, but we're going to see Giannis again and we're going to have to see uh, what percentage health he is. Yeah, it's a crucial game too, Sam. The crucial game too, because going down 0-2 for Milwaukee, heading to Miami, that's that's a tough situation to be in. I think Budenholzer's got to coach his ass off. He's got to hit every right button. We need good games for Middleton and Drew scoring the basketball. And I, I think, again, mismatch hunting, finding ways to play Kevin Love off the floor. If Miami does experiment and dust off like a – a Duncan Robinson a little bit more because they feel like they need some more floor spacing. They punish him immediately. Make sure that he's unplayable in that series. Like they they need to be able to do some of this stuff on the offensive end to produce enough without Giannis in the lineup. The last point that I want to make here, I thought this game was an absolute Jimmy Butler masterclass. <laughs> yeah, he's great. Like in every single respect, I thought Jimmy was essentially perfect in this game he took over offensively when it was necessary he is the guy that like is more than happy to take those mid-range shots but I also think he did a really good job of engaging both the drop defender and trying to like force that 
man to get back to his hip before Brooke could get back or forcing the help man that was like tagging Bam on the roll to stick just that extra split second longer. And I thought he created a lot of those open kick out three pointers by being patient and by just very intelligently and methodically breaking down exactly what Miami was doing. Now it becomes way more difficult to do that when Giannis is on the court because Giannis is so big and so long and takes up so much space and covers so much ground getting out to the three point line. But I thought that Jimmy did a great job of doing exactly what had to be done uh, in order to have success. Yeah. He's uh playoff. Jimmy Butler is here and he's him. He is. Jimmy is very good. Okay. Last series here is by far like we, we talked about the Hawks for like 25 minutes yeah. uh, just because that series feels non-competitive right now. This series also feels non-competitive, but I don't really have as many takes on the Brooklyn Nets right now because it's just an incomplete roster. Yeah. And this roster was not built for this purpose following uh, the Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving deals. I believe they had like, if not a 500 record, slightly under yeah. 500 record after those deals were done. This is not your typical six seed in this NBA that has been very parody driven throughout the course of the year. And it feels like, again, Philadelphia has not even had a phenomenal game yet, in my opinion, in this series. And they've just basically kind of kept it in like the even like first gear on some level and just had zero concerns. I mean, they shot the leather off the ball in game one, particularly in the first half, which allowed them to, to really build up that comfort in that lead. They win games by keeping it simple. In the, in the first game too, we had the Paul Reed game, which was super. Oh, Paul Reed. We love Paul Reed. Uh, the Sixers keep it simple, and that's what I appreciate about them in the post-Simmons era and the way that this roster has been built around Joel Embiid is when he commands a double team the way that he absolutely has to against the Brooklyn Nets because Nick Laxon's too small to do it one-on-one. It, they just have four guys that stand around the three-point line and, and can all shoot the ball. They're the best three-point shooting team through the regular season. Maxi, Harden, uh, you know, Tobias Harris, P.J. Tucker, Melton, Niang, they're all 38% or above from three. All of them. There's no guy that you can overwhelmingly help off of. And when you need somebody else to make a play, like Harden, Maxi, they can go out there and do that. Tobias Harris can really exploit guys in, in one-on-one situations if he needs to. He's a great fourth option to have. But they keep it so simple, and they throw the ball into Joel, and they just say, we dare you to come double-team our MVP. And as soon as you do, because Brooklyn has to, it's just wide open three after wide open three after wide open three. And they're too good of shooters. That, that strategy is going to win them games. Yeah. The, the big problem, too, for Brooklyn is they basically had to play 33 minutes of Joe Harris and Seth Curry And on top of it, the 36 minutes that they played of Royce O'Neal were like a disaster. It felt like every time he was on the court, Uh, he went two for 11, two for nine from three. It just did not go well for them. Nick Claxton is also not an offensively, you know, viable player in terms of creating his own shot. Dorian Finney-Smith can't create his own shot, but is not a reluctant three-point shooter at the very least. 
it's just a lot on Mikhail Bridges and Spencer Dinwiddie basically having to take like pull up jumpers a lot of the time. And that's just really, really tricky. I will say I thought Mikhail Bridges did an outstanding job of drawing defenders toward him and making high level passing reads in this game. That was probably one. Like, I don't know how many games Mikhail Bridges have had seven assists like he did in game two. I can't imagine it's many, but I thought he was really strong and positive uh, with his decision-making and passing in this game. So uh, not to almost put a bow on it and bring things full circle, but Philly and Boston are both up 2-0 in two pretty convincing victories to start their series. And they have done so, as we said, without kicking it into high gear, just by keeping it simple and doing nothing overly complicated. They just can't get bored of that. And when you go into an opposing team's home court for two straight games – it's very easy to become a little bit complacent with some of that stuff. This is as much a mental battle for both of these teams over the next couple of games as anything else. Can you continue to make shots on the road and can you just stick to the formula that's working because the opponents that you're going against, they don't have enough to make the adjustments to beat you with that strategy. And I will say like, I thought the doubles in game two, Forcing Joel to make passing reads, forcing Joel to be a little bit flustered with the ball resulted in eight turnovers from Joel. Like it was what they wanted in that circumstance. It's just that Joel also dominated the glass entirely, dominated the paint defensively. Joel is a superstar and is incredible. And it looks like he's going to win MVP this year uh, for a reason. And it's not just the fact that he led the NBA in scoring, it's that he does all of these other things in conjunction with it, especially when he's like really engaged and when you don't have the ability to really beat drop coverage and all due respect to Spencer Dinwiddie and Mikhail Bridges, they don't really have anybody that can beat drop coverage uh, in this series in the way that you have to, in order to pressure this Philadelphia defensive structure, which just makes this like not all that interesting of a series to me uh we will certainly find out a lot next series uh with the boston celtics assuming that comes to fruition but this series feels uh feels like it's going to be very difficult for brooklyn to put a lot of pressure on philadelphia unless they just get nuclear hot from three and force joel into a number of turnover situations like they did in game two yeah and again i I think that if there's one adjustment or change that Philly can make, it's just by maybe putting the ball in Harden or Maxi's hands a little bit more, maybe to try to get a switch earlier in the clock in some of those regards so that maybe Embiid gets quicker opportunities to catch and finish near the basket. But it, this is – you don't got to overthink things if you're Doc Rivers. Keep the game simple. Keep doing what you've been doing and just keep defending your asses off. I mean – Philly turned the ball over 19 times in this game. They only got 16 free throw attempts and they shot 31% from three in game two. And they still won by 12, let alone uh, by a significant, uh, you know, luck based factor where you win a tight game like that. You know, they were up five going into the fourth quarter and they just absolutely beat them in the fourth quarter. So, I I just don't 
I don't see this as like an interesting series to talk about. Uh, you know, we'll see what, you know, maybe we'll talk about Brooklyn's offseason next episode yeah. if the series is uh, at 3-0 and, you know, there's really nothing to talk about. But it, it's it's an intriguing setup, I think, moving forward uh, for all of these teams. Yeah. Okay. I am excited to watch this Clippers Suns game that is 59 59 at halftime. I think that in that vein and in that spirit, we should probably get out of here. Spins. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Sam, this was fun. Uh, Welcome back to Australia. Uh, I know (laughs) they, I'm sure they missed you, but, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff coming out this week for the Boxing One mock draft coming up this week and, and trying to update now that we've got a little bit more clarity on pre-lottery odds. Uh, scouting reports coming out just did Nick Smith, Trace Jackson Davis, and Rayon Repair will be out later this week. So looking forward to that. Find all of that work with mine on my Twitter account at the Boxing One underscore, my YouTube channel, Adam Spinella, or the Substack, theboxingone.substack.com. Typically, Spins and I record on Sunday evening. I would say that there is a pretty distinct possibility that we still do that. Uh, I might have to get Spins to double up next week because I do want to do a draft episode because next week is the early entry deadline and a number of players will have made decisions at that point. And there will be a number of interesting talking points. I am also... Uh, I believe one player, no, two players away, I'm sorry, from being done with like the top 20 players on my board in terms of the draft guide. And like I I have, you know, 32 or so profiles done now, but like really starting to gear into this thing and like get things in a place that are very there is very positive and in a way that we can like really start to like genuinely dive deep into some of these guys probably worth doing that at some point soon. Let's maybe plan on it uh, next week at some point. Maybe we'll find, I'm trying to think like when, when there's like a downtime in terms of games, I think like even Tuesday is pretty loaded and I think Wednesday has potential to be loaded uh my guess though is that you know if if we get like a nugget sweep and if we get a hawks or if we get a celtic sweep monday or two yeah monday could end end up only having one game we might go back to back nights spins jordan 96 97 let's get it yeah uh Late, later in the week, we should also have some like series ending as well, which might make it a little bit easier. But at some point, we're going to have to do draft stuff and really dive into yeah. draft stuff a little bit more because I do want to do that. And it's always yeah. fun. Uh, other than that, man, uh, my body is slowly but surely uh, shutting off basically at this point. Uh, after a 15-hour flight last night. I'm glad we got a chance to do this, though. Again, we will be back tomorrow with Mark Schindler. We're going to talk about the Western Conference series, and I might get Schindler to talk a little bit about that Bucks heat second game as well, just because it will be an interesting 
construction for us to dive into. Other than that, though, uh, keep it locked here. Spins, tell the people where they can find your work. Uh, Twitter at the box and one underscore YouTube, Adam Spinella, Substack, the box and one dot substack.com. You can find me at the athletic CJ Moore and I are still breaking down transfers. Uh, I will have a lot of features coming up like very, very soon. I gathered a lot while I was in the United States and am excited to start reaching out to secondary sources, people that I'm like really diving into. Uh, I would say that over the course of the next month, you're probably going to see quite a few things from me that I'm really excited about. Uh, in addition to that, I'm just draft guiding and really trying to lock some things down on that end. Uh, and yeah, you will have a podcast for me five nights a week, be it 30 minutes or be it an hour and 15 minutes like this one was. So keep it locked here. Go to that Game Theory YouTube channel. That's going to be the absolute best place where you can find everything. Game Theory podcast with Sam Vecini. That is that's going to be where you want to go every single night in the playoffs. I promise you that we are going to dive deep into everything over there. That's about all I've got though for this evening until next time we will talk soon.